Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. It's a beautiful day. <laughs> hey. Hello, hello. Hello, insert peppy happy banter. <laughs> yes. Wow. Here we are. It feels like it's been a really long time since we talked, and it hasn't. It's been less than a week. <laughs> I know. Uh, listeners, off pod, unrecorded. Curse and I just had a full vent session. <laughs> so we we cleared the negativity. Yes. We uh, <laughs> at least temporarily cleansed ourselves. So mm-hmm. now we're in for a good time to talk about bad things. Yes. <laughs> the most cheerful and peppy true crime podcast out there. Can we say that? I feel like I feel like we could assert that probably. Yeah, there's a few episodes where we it's just too heavy, but mm. in general, it's pretty peppy. Yeah, yeah, and I like it. Um, I... The world is grim, but you don't have to be. Yes. <laughs> so this is our advertisement for disassociation. <laughs> <laughs> when in doubt, disassociate. I mean, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Side effects can include... <laughs> Um, I wish I was smart enough to have a very fast list of potential side effects. <laughs> Feeling dead inside. <laughs> uh, pushing pushing actual problems to a later date that it will actually come back and haunt you uh, even more than if you just address them right now. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Headache, heartburn. <laughs> Listlessness, insomnia, all the good now stuff. I just have like, uh, because I'm also 100 years old, I have like the list of the vitamita vegemin thing from the i love lucy show are you listless do you poop out at parties (laughs) well here's vitamita vegemin i need some of that we were talking Uh, about having a complete um blood transfusion i need that i need something some kind of medical intervention to reanimate Maybe we start off small with one of those like Vegas style oxygen bars. Yes. <laughs> I was just thinking of that the other day. I need like a shot of vitamin B and to be hooked up to pure oxygen for I don't know, six hours. Not in like a, a crazy way, but I actually did read that there are connections to lack of vitamin D that they're finding between Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and dementia. And so I was... And normally I get a lot of sun, but lately I'm not um, mm-hmm. for just other reasons. <laughs> and I was like, how do I get my vitamin D checked to mm-hmm. see if I need a vitamin D supplement? And I don't know the answer. <laughs> I mean, when in doubt, just take vitamins. I guess you just like pee them out. Yeah. I mean, even with the fat soluble ones, you'd have to take a ton to make yourself sick. I just also want to insert here, I am not a doctor. I'm talking to Andrew. (laughs) I'm not talking to listeners. Don't take my medical advice, listeners. But Andrew, I think you should just start taking vitamin D. (laughs) I do have a generic brand, Centrum A to Z. Uh And I wonder if D is part of that mix. I'm sure it is, yeah. 
And then I'm pretty sure <laughs> this is where <laughs> we just get like canceled for just straight up misinformation. <laughs> In my mind, I'm pretty sure you can get a lot of vitamin D from mushrooms because mm. they absorb it. And now I feel like if I can quietly Google while we talk because <laughs> I don't want to be a liar. I'm the queen of of typing without tapping. So I think you could do it. But yeah. That sounds familiar, which is enough for our podcast because we're a true crime podcast, not a medical podcast. But honestly, maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing to get canceled for something, but like something light, like vitamin D misinformation. Okay. Do we trust MontereyMushroom.com? That sounds like they might be part of Big Mushroom. I'm not sure. Ooh, there's a .gov. (laughs) NCBI.gov. NLM.NIH.gov. That's official right there. Yeah. We can we can trust them. Uh, when commonly used mushrooms are exposed to UV radiation, such as sunlight or a, a UV lamp, they can generate nutritionally relevant amount of vitamin D. There you go. Okay. So they are a decent source of vitamin D and that mushroom website claims that they're the only significant vitamin D in the produce aisle, which is what I had heard. And I did have a job writing about produce. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like semi-informed. Um, I I had a, a friend who once used the phrase, I think I saw this in a documentary once. (laughs) (laughs) And it's sort of feeling like that inside of me right now. I think I've heard about this. That That makes sense. may be a fact. Well, because that's why they add it to milk, I think. And that's why for infants, you give them drops. Because there are not that many nutritional sources of vitamin D. Yeah. It's just the sun. Mm Mm-hmm. Right on our skin, which can also cause cancer, just like everything in this world. (laughs) See, we're happy, peppy people. We are so happy. (laughs) We're just filled with the spirit for mushrooms and vitamin D and murder. And podcasting. Yes, which is amazing. And actually, listeners... Kirsten and I are testing out something new today. Yes. I'm really excited to give it a try. I am as well. And I have not forethought about how to talk about it. <laughs> and I'm realizing live in recording, I I don't even remember. So a long time ago, like even in some of our beginning planning, part of our conversation was like, well, you know, there's a lot of true crime cases out there that don't have tons of movies, music, TV shows about them. Mm-hmm. So, like, is there a way in which we're going to hit some of these that do touch pop culture, just not in a significant, like, I have an entire section to talk about pop culture kind of way? Right. Yeah. And one of our ideas was occasionally, if any of these stories stand out to us that we've you know checked in our research and there's not a significant amount that we would sort of keep track of those and in today's episode we're testing out Kirsten and I are each going to tell one of those stories so it's going to be two cases today Mm -hmm. uh, with some pop culture reference just not a ton Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's exciting 
trying new things, pushing the boundary, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Woo. We didn't talk about who was going to start, though. In my mind, it was you. <laughs> <laughs> but I could if you want me to. No, in my mind, it was me, too. We're just like that. We're simpatico, always. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to start today with a case that goes back to the 1980s, and it's in the U.S. It's a case that takes place in Hawaii, and it has one of those newspaper-type names for it. This particular killer has a moniker that was used in the press, but this is a serial case, so, you know, the usual warnings apply. Um, and we always list resources in our episode notes, so check that out. But this case has references to sexual violence, so listeners, please be, please be aware. So this case and this killer is known popularly as the Honolulu Strangler or sometimes as the Honolulu Rapist. And as I said, this takes us back to the 80s in Hawaii on the island of Oahu, and the first of this crime started in May of 1985. And a victim whose name is Vicki Gail Purdy, age 25, she was the wife of a military army helicopter pilot. She had gone out to go clubbing in May 1985, but she didn't turn up to meet her friends. And she was seen by a taxi driver who took her to a hotel and dropped her off near her car around midnight that night. But when she didn't turn up the next day, her husband kind of raised the alarm and her body was found in an embankment in a lagoon called Kihi, Kihi Lagoon. And things to note that are important kind of as part of the MO is that she had been raped as the name of the the perpetrator implies, and strangled, again, as the name of the perpetrator implies. But one important kind of piece of evidence also at that time was that she had her arms bound behind her back. Mm. So this first case was a bit puzzling to police. Obviously, they're investigating it thoroughly. But Vicki had worked at a video store at the time of her death, and that video mm -hmm. store happened to also sell and rent um, pornographic movies. And so there was some thought that maybe her death, her murder, had been connected to her work in some way, that someone who frequented the video store had followed her um, and committed this crime. And there had been some violence attached to that particular video store the previous year there were two women who were stabbed to death um i think at the video store so that was kind of where the investigation took them initially yeah i mean it doesn't feel like a bad thought process i mean the connection to pornography is questionable as though someone who just frequents a regular blockbuster couldn't also be a killer but yeah it's like, well, I don't, retail was scary in that way. I mean, I worked it as a teenager and not so much for myself because I'm like a giant person, mm -hmm. but like my employees, sometimes it was a small store. People had to work alone, close yeah. the store alone. Like I had those thoughts with retail. Like there's some real creeps. Definitely. I mean, it's definitely a solid line of inquiry. Unfortunately, it didn't really get them anywhere and her case kind of, 
ran cold after a few months. In January of 1986, so now we're, what, six, seven months later, another victim turns up. Her name is Regina Sakamoto, and she was only 17 years old. So, yeah, she was a high school student, and she had missed her school bus in the morning um, and was walking to a bus stop to take uh, public transportation to school. And we know about this timing because she made a phone call, a quick phone call to her boyfriend really early that morning, letting him know that she would be late to school. She had missed her bus, Hmm. but she never turned up at school. And when she didn't come home from school, again, her parents raised the alarm and she was found, I think, a day later in a similar state to Vicky. Um, She had been raped, strangled, and her arms were bound behind her back. She had also been found at Kihi Lagoon. So at this point, police really feel like these two cases are connected. The MO was so similar, the location where the bodies were found. And they really start digging into a serial angle for this case. But before they could get very far with this theory, just two weeks later, the third victim was found. Her name is Denise Hughes, and she was a 21-year-old secretary for the telephone company, and she commuted by bus to work. She didn't show up to work. She was found a few days later by three fishermen at Moanulua Stream. Mm-hmm. Again, this is not too far from where the previous victims had been found. Her body was in a further state of decomposition, and she had been partially wrapped in a tarp, but her hands were also bound in the same manner. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled, and the state of her clothing was the same. He had a habit of leaving them clothed on top and not on bottom. So four days after her body was found, the police formed a task force. They publicly stated that these are serial cases, they're dealing with a serial killer, and a task force was created. Just a month and a half later, the fourth victim was found. Her name is Louise Medeiros, and she was age 25 at the time of her death. She lived in the same village as the first two victims, And she had gone to Kauai to meet her family because of the death of her mother recently. Um, So she had just taken a flight back to Oahu on March 26th, and she was planning on taking a bus home from the airport, and Mm. she never never made it home. She was found um, a couple of weeks later near a stream by road workers. And again, her body was similarly clothed, her arms bound, the same as the previous victims. And still a water source. Yeah, and and found in water. So at this point, the police are investigating, but, you know, when the task force was formed, they brought in the FBI, and specifically they brought in part of the team that had been investigating the Green River serial case. And they came up with a profile of the killer, They felt that this killer was an opportunist. It wasn't someone who was stalking particular victims, but was frequenting places like bus stations and airports that he was targeting 
people who were vulnerable and people who maybe didn't have, they weren't necessarily tourists, but they didn't mm -hmm. have a lot of ties to Hawaii. A lot of these victims were originally from other states and were here for jobs or for because of spouse jobs, things like that. Yeah. They also felt that he was very highly organized. So, you know, in serial cases, a big kind of two of the buckets that profilers will put serial killers into is disorganized and organized. And, and they thought that this killer was organized because there was a tremendous lack of evidence left with mm -hmm. any of these bodies. So as they're kind of working and, and trying to narrow down the field of who this could be, they were faced with a lot of challenges in that regard. You know, there are hundreds of thousands of visitors to Oahu every year. There are military installations, Army, Navy, Marines. I'm trying to think of the other one. <laughs> Army, Navy, Marines. Air Force. Air Force. There's just Space a, Force. a ton of military people there. So a lot of kind of, you know, people coming and going. So that made mm -hmm. the, the hunt for this killer even more complicated and difficult. As they're doing their work, a fifth body um, is found. Now, this fifth victim, her name is Linda Pessy, and she was age 36, so a little bit off of the other victims in the sense that she was older. She was about a decade older than most of the other victims. But so many of the other pieces kind of fit. She had been on her way to work. She didn't turn up for a work meeting and her car was found. Her roommate reported her missing. But something really different happened in this fifth case. A man whose name is Howard Gay contacted police and told police that a psychic had told him that Linda's body could be found on Sand Island, which is a little island. I the way I understand it in that kind of lagoon area, that lagoon mm, water mm -hmm. system with the streams, there were some little islands in there. So right away, the police took him seriously, even though it's kind of a wild claim. And they took him to Sand Island. And from different reports that I read, he led them to the exact spot where the psychic said that her body would be found. And she was not found there. But according to reports at the time, he was kind of leading them all over the island except one particular spot. And that is the spot where she was eventually found. So this raises their what the fuck meter, like all the way to 11, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so they immediately begin investigating him. And they arrested him. They you know, ask questions. Now, at the same time that they're kind of interrogating him, they set up a roadblock for the the path that Linda could have been taking to work that day that she was abducted and killed. Mm -hmm. And they interviewed people about what they had seen. Had they seen anyone suspicious? Had they seen her? You know, all of these kinds of things. And they got reports from commuters that they had seen a light-colored van and a white or a mixed-race man with Linda's car. So the working theory at this point was that her car had broken down and someone had offered assistance and that person was her killer. Mm -hmm. And their descriptions were kind of vague but fit Howard Gay. 
They also did some digging into his background, and they spoke with his ex-wife and his current girlfriend, who all reported that he had a fetish for bondage and had engaged in sex with both of them when their hands were bound behind their back. So not definitive, but definitely suggestive that they're on the right track. Yeah. They asked him to take a lie detector test, a polygraph, which he did. And again, we always say, don't take a polygraph test. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad he did, I guess, but it's like, there's no benefit. Right, there's no benefit. It's only risk. (laughs) But he did, um, and he failed it. The police followed him. They put out a reward for information. But again, with the information that they had, it just wasn't enough to charge him. It was lots of circumstantial evidence, but nothing that would hold up in court. The final kind of damning piece in the case is that two months after he was arrested and then eventually released, a woman came forward and claimed that she saw him, Howard Gay, with Linda on the night of the murder. She was able to pick him out of a photo lineup accurately. But unfortunately, she was afraid and she did not want to testify or act as a witness because she believed that he had seen her. So Mm. she was really scared. So because of this, investigators really believed that they had their killer. And I think the investigation kind of, in terms of pursuing other leads, ended at that point. Yeah. And the focus was really on trying to get new information that would link him to the cases or case But that never happened. And so information on this is pretty scarce, which is why we chose it to talk about today, because it's one of these cases that is no less interesting than a lot of the much more well-known serial cases. But, you know, the killer to this at this point has evaded justice. Now, Howard Gay died in 2003, and so he will never receive the kind of justice if he's guilty of this crime that I think most of us would like to see. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a case that still merits a lot more review and some kind of push to see um, justice done, if only in name, you know, that he could be proven. And so some investigators have said since then that, you know, DNA... um, technology existed then the way it does now we could have gotten him but that leads me to wonder you know why if if there are dna samples from the crimes why can't that be tested and given that whole treatment and we don't even have to do the whole forensic genealogy thing because we have a suspect in this case it's just a matter of matching yeah but you know it it has gotten some coverage in the media but it hasn't spawned any kind of pop cultural ripples in the way that we think of them in terms of it being fictionalized or Mm -hmm. or songs or anything like that but it was covered by really good podcast case file true crime podcast investigation discovery did a a show called breaking homicide about it and of course my favorite murder has covered it because they've covered every every (laughs) murder so yeah just one of these that i feel like is so uh not well known considering i mean five victims you know that's yeah 
that's a lot of victims. And one thing that I found really interesting as well is this is only the second serial killer known to have been active in Hawaii at any time. The other one was was identified and, and convicted, but just kind of found that surprising as well. It's a lot that's so interesting about this case, but I really am so interested in how how you reach that dead end where you say, okay, there's nothing else that can be done. We know we have the guy or, you know, we believe beyond a reasonable doubt that we have the guy. And what does that do to investigators to feel that you know who it is, you know, and there's nothing you can do. Yeah, which is an interesting phenomenon slash trope. Mm -hmm. And then it's that scary thing of so many innocent people do get arrested especially people of color Mm -hmm. because the cops are like air quote short it's the person so they stop looking for any other options yeah so it's like of both minds depending on who the cop is who the police unit is where it's like i'm sure it fucks you up Like, I think all cops should be in mandatory weekly therapy, just in general. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But yeah, like. Well, and I do think that when we look at it, the way it's viewed, I think if this were a case that would happen today, I mean, a little bit like the Menendez brothers, right? If this case happened today, our perspective on certain aspects of it would be different. You know, a person who has a bondage fetish and like to have sex with his partner bound like that wouldn't necessarily be oh okay well he's the killer you know I mean I think we know a lot more our society is just a lot more open about sexuality in general and working at at a place that sold pornos wouldn't be viewed as oh well you know you're kind of making yourself vulnerable in this kind of way I mean you know so there are parts of it that Our society is just really different, and I think the way it would have been viewed and investigated would have been a little bit different on that account. Yeah. I mean, especially like a blockbuster movie gallery type situation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where it's like that's almost every video store, which listeners, if you're of a certain age, there used to be stores where you would go and rent movies from. (laughs) Uh, Most of them also had a little pornography section in the back you'd go behind a curtain and (laughs) a literal curtain yes never went well yeah because we were children when that we weren't allowed yeah i feel like netflix netflix came along i mean not like netflix had porn but like like the death of the video store yeah. was also happening before I would have been of like legal age to go yeah. behind that curtain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. fascinating. I mean, I, obviously, I I think this guy probably did do it. Mm-hmm. I would like to know where the investigation, like I know it's circumstantial, but like if there is no psychic right like that's that's the piece i would like there to be more information about like they must have asked who the psychic is and like right tried to corroborate right and i'm assuming there's no psychic i mean of course there's no psychic no i know it's like there's so many questions in this 
in this case. And also, you know, there was a notable lack of evidence, but one of the victims was wrapped in a tarp, you know, where is that tarp? Has it been given the 21st century treatment in terms of evidence analysis and yeah, just so much, there's so much more. And, you know, Howard Gay, what, what did he do with the rest of his life? You know, we talk often about serial killers and do they just stop on their own? If you have this kind of compulsion, do you ever just stop? Did he stay in Hawaii and these, these killings ended? I mean, clearly he knew he was, you know, a, a suspect and oh yeah and they're it, watching hard at least right. for years yeah so i can see it stopping for a time but you know we're talking almost 20 years to not have any inkling to to return to it i, I you know i don't know but that's in, all of it there's so much more that i would like to know when you had the excellent thought process slash anecdote in one of our previous discussions about like, well, the serial killers that can't stop are the ones who get caught and we know about them. That mm -hmm. doesn't mean there's not a whole group of serial killers who can stop and mm -hmm. were never caught. I mean, especially mm -hmm. when we think about like Golden State and it was just familial DNA coming in like. I mean, so far, we haven't heard of any more connections, and that would have been decades that he just stopped. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's very true. I mean, I feel like that case kind of forced a reexamination of some of the, um, you know, long-held truisms about serial killers. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. Well, it worked out that yours was first. <laughs> Because mine, I mean, it's still murder, but it's a, it's not as heavy in that way. <laughs> so, Kirsten and listener, I'm going to tell the story, the just like wild story. Yeah. Of Bernie T.D. Mm -hmm. So, this is a case I learned about because of the 2011 movie Bernie, which mm -hmm. I'll spend some time with. But first, let's talk about the man, and even before that, his parents. Mm. So just a quick rundown. His dad, Bernhardt T.D., immigrated to the U.S. in the 1920s. Bernhardt was a professor of music and choral director at Our Lady of the Lake College in San Antonio, Texas, mm. at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, at Kilgore College in Kilgore, and then McMurray College in Abilene, where he mm. served as director of the McMurray Chanters until his death. In addition to his work in universities, he was also a church music director and vocal performer. Mm -hmm. His mom, Layla May Jester, immigrated to the U.S. from Germany, married Bernhardt in 57. The next year, Bernie was born. Mm -hmm. And then two years later, his mother died in a tragic car accident. Ugh. So then in 63, Bernie's dad remarried a woman named Clara Catherine Wiley, who became his stepmom. Mm. And then his father died in Abilene when Bernie was 15. Yikes. So definitely experienced a lot of death, a lot of instability in his young life. Mm -hmm. He graduated from Cooper High School in 1976 and became a, what would you think? 
a mortician. Mm. Oh. <laughs> Working in Carthage, Texas as assistant director of the Hawthorne Funeral Home. Mm. Now, important to the story, he was very, very popular in this Texas town. Mm. Beloved in the town, especially among the local widows. Mm. So fast forwarding a couple decades, Bernie met the town's wealthiest widow, Marjorie Nugent, in March of 1990 at her husband's funeral, which Bernie helped arrange. Mm -hmm. The two eventually became inseparable companions, although she was more than 40 years his senior. Eesh. In 91, Nugent altered her will and disinherited her only child, Rod Nugent, leaving her entire $10 million estate to Bernie. Oh. By 93, Bernie left his job to work for Nugent full-time as her business manager and travel companion. <laughs> so just three years after that, in November of 96, Bernie killed Nugent by shooting her in the back four times with a 22 caliber rifle. Uh. He placed her body in a freezer, used to store food in her home, and according to the Amarillo Globe News, Nugent's estranged son, Rod, an Amarillo pathologist, had grown concerned about not being able to reach his mother. After traveling to Panola County nine months after her death, Rod declared Nugent a missing person. He and his daughter entered his mother's house where they found her body in the freezer. Uh, where was Bernie? He was out and about. Ugh. Uh, spreading joy and good cheer to the community with her money. So Bernie was taken in for questioning. He admitted to Nugent's murder to the police in August of 97. He said that after the murder, he prepared the body and placed it in the freezer. After that, he confessed to using Nugent's money for civic activities, gifts to academic and civic groups, and to friends. She'd given him power of attorney before that, so mm. it, it wasn't really questionable that he had access to the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then jumping to the end, well, not quite the end, spoiler, <laughs> <laughs> a jury convicted Bernie of first-degree murder and sentenced him to 50 years in prison. Mm. So open, shut case, confession. It's like technically, yes, but that's not the whole story mm -hmm. in terms of why the story is interesting. Okay. So to get into that, we move into 1998. Skip Hollinsworth, incredible article, Midnight in the Garden of East Texas, mm. that was published in Texas Monthly Magazine. Texas Monthly does true crime so well. Yes. So this article begins with an incredible thesis statement of a subhead. So, quote, Marjorie Nugent was the richest widow in an eccentric town full of widows. Bernie Teedy was an assistant funeral home director who became her companion. When she disappeared, nobody seemed alarmed. When he confessed to killing her, nobody seemed outraged. End uh, quote. Oh, shit. This article is incredible. And listeners, you must read it. It's linked in our episode notes. And so if you'll indulge me, I'm going to read you the first couple of short paragraphs from the article. There's just no way I could paraphrase or set the scene 
better than this article does. So there's going to be some interesting amounts of quotes. I'm going to use a little bit of an accent because I was like, how is this going to even make sense <laughs> over audio? <laughs> okay. So this is the article. Sitting at his regular table at Daddy Sam's Barbecue and Catfish in the East Texas town of Carthage, District Attorney Danny Buck Davidson began to realize that he might have some problems prosecuting Bernie Teedy for murder. Quote, Bernie's a sweet man, Danny Buck, a waitress said. He's done a lot of good things for this town. He's given poor kids money to go to college and everything. End quote. <laughs> New person. You gotta admit, nobody could sing Amazing Grace like Bernie could, somebody else said. <laughs> the bulldog-faced Danny Buck took a bite of slaw and sipped his iced tea. Quote, Now y'all know that Bernie confessed, don't you? He said, trying to keep his voice calm. He came right out and told a Texas Ranger that he shot Miss Nugent four times in the back and then stuffed her in her own deep freeze in her kitchen. End quote. There was a long silence. Someone else chimed in. Danny Buck, one man finally said, it's just hard for me to believe that old Bernie could fire a gun straight. He acts, well, you know, effeminate. You can tell he's never been deer hunting in his entire life. <laughs> Another person. <laughs> and you know what? A woman told Danny Buck later at a convenience store, I don't care if Miss Nugent was the richest lady in town. She was so mean that even if Bernie did kill her, you won't be able to find anyone in town who's going to convict him for murder. End quote. And reading. <laughs> Holy shit. So that is how it starts. Wow. This story is incredibly captivating. Bernie is this effeminate mortician, church member, choir star who's loved in this town. The victim, Marjorie Nugent, is hated. No one cared. I mean, in so much that she had been dead for nine months before a single person <laughs> went looking for her. Jesus. So it's kind of perfectly encapsulating this sentiment of the town was a quote I found. City Councilman Olin Joffreon, who was also a respected Carthage insurance agent, he said, quote, from the day that deep freeze was opened, you haven't been able to find anyone in town saying, poor Mrs. Nugent. People here are saying, poor Bernie, end quote. Wow. It's fascinating. I mean, this feels like a modern day setup for a retelling of A Christmas Carol, but instead of <laughs> Scrooge, it's this woman, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, it wasn't all a dream to go back and make different uh... choices. So... The sheriff, I understand, I can see how this information is relevant, but to me, the sheriff also tried to smear Bernie by announcing during a morning talk show on the local radio station that the sheriff had <laughs> in this town, uh, announcing that deputies had confiscated nearly 50 videotapes from Bernie's house, some showing men involved in illicit acts. Ugh. So it, it, it can be relevant in that he was tricking these this old woman and, like, wasn't even straight. Like, I can understand a relevant place, but it was also obviously the homophobia. Yeah, right. But even the homophobia card, small Texas town, the town refused to abandon Bernie. 
so much so that a stream of mostly female well-wishers visited Bernie in jail, bringing him cakes and pies. Oh, my God. (laughs) One of the women told the Houston Chronicle, quote, if I made a list of people I knew were going to heaven, Bernie would be the first on that list. Jesus. This is Uh. after confessing to murder. It just makes you wonder if he had killed someone else. Yeah. How much of this was how much they liked him and how much of it is how much they hated her. Yeah, literally, you are spot on. So the townsfolks did not like her. They felt like this extremely rich woman was, quote, too good for Carthage, end quote. So of course they were jealous. Yeah. She's rich. Yeah. Millions of dollars. Um, She didn't participate in any civic activities. She didn't contribute to Carthage causes. One anecdote I found was that when the local vet charged her $45 to treat her dog, she argued with him so much until he lowered the price. But I mean, this is like every, this is like every rich woman in New York. Of course. And I don't say any of this, like not this part about her, not this whole story of bernie like none of it is to speak ill of the dead like you can be rude yeah you cannot give people your money and you do not deserve to be murdered (laughs) i mean because you haggle yeah i i mean and you don't give away your money wow i know this is a southern thing but you can probably equate it back to your upbringing too like i it's just like a palpable sense i can feel it i can hear it like, oh, she thinks she's too good. Oh, she thinks she's better than us. Like, Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I've seen it so many times growing up. It's just like, she was kind of like the town outcast. Everybody hated her. The thing is, where I grew up, like, those people banded together and they <laughs> had such a cabal that even though others may have thought, you know, whatever, they... They had their click, you know. Mm-hmm. They blamed her for being estranged from her sister, for being estranged from her son. It was just like proof to them. Like, see, she's so bad. Her own family won't even be a part of her life. Which in the South and in rural places like that, that's like pretty damning. So as for motive, it's kind of hard to say. The police believe that she discovered that Bernie was stealing her money and he killed her to keep her quiet, which mm-hmm. probably Occam's razor, mm-hmm. that is what happened. Mm-hmm. But she was leaving it all to him anyway, so why would she have cared so much? Yeah, well, but I mean, not letting it all play into the homophobia, but if she did find like definitive proof that he was gay, mm. or I don't know, there's a couple ways it could have gone down. Or, I mean, she haggled over $45. Like, she was leaving him the money, but if she found out that he was, like, full-on taking, like, a million bucks, I I still think it could go different. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. According to the townsfolk, he must have snapped because of something that mean woman did. Air quotes, (laughs) air quotes. According to Bernie, though, it's even weirder. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Nothing led to it. He said there were no particular problems. They'd been running errands. They had lunch. He picked up a gun and started firing. And this is a quote attributed to him through his sister, where he said, quote, 
I started thinking about having to live with her for the rest of her life, and I just couldn't take it, end quote. I mean, but how old was she? I mean, pretty old? Pretty old, but I mean, years. So clearly the story is weird as hell and fascinating, so much so that it was turned into the 2011 black comedy crime film entitled Bernie. Mm. It was directed by Richard Linklater, written Mm -hmm. by Linklater and our incredible author, Skip Hollinsworth, who wrote the Texas Monthly article. Mm -hmm. He became a screenwriter. Oh, wow. And it stars Jack Black, Shirley MacLaine, and Matthew McConaughey. Mm. So Rotten Tomatoes, 88%, certified fresh. That site reads, quote, Richard Linklater's Bernie is a gently told and unexpectedly amusing true crime comedy that benefits from an impressive performance by Jack Black. End quote. Yeah. Uh, Ebert gave the film three and a half out of four stars. He praised Jack's performance as well as Linklater's direction, saying, quote, his genius was to see Jack Black as Bernie TD. Mm. End quote. Jonathan Rosenbaum called the film a masterpiece, describing it as a companion piece to Linklater's 1998 film, The Newton Boys, adding, quote, so good that the humor can't be reduced to simple satire. A whole community winds up speaking through the film, and it has a lot to say. In fact, it's hard to think of many other celebrations of small-town American life that are quite as rich, as warm, and as complexly layered, at least within recent years, end quote. Hmm. And the movie had a lot of actual Carthage residents in it. So interesting. <laughs> it was on a lot of top 10 lists. It was nominated for Best Feature at the 2012 Independent Spirit Awards. The National Board of Review included it in their top 10 indie films. Jack Black's performance earned a Golden Globe nomination. So very successful. Yeah. Definitely recommend watching it. Speaking of Netflix, this is a thing I'm pretty sure I ordered a disc in the mail of this movie <laughs> that came to my home to go inside of a DVD player. Oh my gosh. So it's a classic. Yeah. But that isn't the end. This is a, a moment where the culture directly circles back to affect the case. Mm. So having seen the film, Austin-based attorney Jody Cole met with Richard Linklater for further information about the case. After meeting with Bernie in prison, she began work on a habeas corpus petition in his case, raising issues not addressed in the previous direct appeal. Mm-hmm. So Bernie alleged that his constitutional rights were violated in the first trial because of newly discovered evidence. Mm -hmm. He further alleged in the writ that the, oh, 81, she was only 81. So who knows? Yeah, I guess who knows, but that the 81 year old Nugent was controlling and emotionally abusive toward him and that he murdered her in a disassociative state resulting from years of sexual abuse as a child. That was the new claim. Hmm. Bernie was temporarily released from his sentence in May 2014 on $10,000 bail with the condition that he had to live with film director Richard Linklater in Austin, Texas, which what he did. <laughs> what? Oh, my God. Truth is stranger than fiction, but it's not over. <laughs> uh, Nugent's granddaughter expressed shock that the release was granted, suggesting that it was due to the film's portrayal of Bernie. 
um, that prosecutor, Danny Buck, said that he had met with members of Marjorie's family. He believed the film led to successful efforts to have Bernie paroled early from a life sentence. Out on bond, though, he was due back in court in March 2015 uh, for a resentencing. So it was enough to say, like, yeah, maybe the sentence wasn't right, but not like just you're free. So then in April of 2016, after a resentencing hearing in Henderson, Texas, a jury deliberated for four and a half hours. They determined that Bernie had premeditation and sentenced him to 99 years to life. So it was a short reprieve. Mm -hmm. A week after his resentencing, Bernie filed an appeal, but in 2017, the Texas Appeals Court upheld the 99-year prison sentence. He's not eligible for parole until August 3rd, 2029, which is the day after his 71st birthday. And that is the wild story of Bernie Tiedi, a man who committed murder, admitted to murder, and was somehow beloved by the small Texas town. So again, highly recommend the article, highly recommend the movie. It is a wild story. What a case. Holy shit. And it's not everybody. The town was split. Like, not everybody just loved him, but it's insane. I mean, on paper, this, like, effeminate, weird, jolly church choir singing man should not be beloved (laughs) in, like, a small East Texas town. Yeah. But he was. I mean, but he used her money. He gave to the churches, to the schools, to the needy. Like, they loved him. I mean, it reminds me of the Dorothea Puente case in some way. Like, you know, how she had, kind, you know, she had been beloved in certain circles and had been charitable, not to this extent, but so weird. I mean, this man is a murderer, a con man, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Like... Even if it wasn't premeditated, it was wild. And I mean, he put her in the freezer, but he claimed that everybody deserved like a proper burial as opposed to like being asked why he didn't get rid of her body. Yeah. But it's like, this is not a well person. And like, it's an interesting story. And like, especially the movie. I mean, of course, it like, you do kind of like him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, Jack Black is pretty funny. It's a over the top like all the widows that love him yeah and just how he like paid attention to old women right at the end of the day it's an admitted murderer yeah but i mean i think it just it gets to that idea that i think people struggle with even though you know in your in your rational mind that monsters don't look and seem like monsters always but it's still hard to reconcile it when the non-monster side of a monster is out. It can be so hard for people to, you know, reconcile that. And just the examination of what happens when one of the most beloved community members kills one of the most hated. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole sociology like thesis right there. In crowd, out crowd, like yeah. it, it's just 
almost unfathomable. The article is so good. Yeah. I mean, I feel like they publish such good journalism, not just true crime, but I've read a lot of their long form writing and such a solid publication. Yay. Texas Monthly. We like you. <laughs> yeah. Wow. One of the few Texas things at the moment. That I know. Can, uh, <laughs> I know. Right. <laughs> hopefully agree on. Oh my gosh. That is so bizarre. I was hoping you hadn't seen the movie. <laughs> I hadn't. And I don't really even know why, because I like Jack Black, but I don't know. There was something about it that just, I don't know, but I'm definitely going to watch it now. At the very least, reading the article. I mean, the article is free and live online, Texas Monthly. Yeah. It is it is so well written, and it's so like, like, that's why I read the intro to you with like the different people chiming in. Like, I don't even know how you would paraphrase it correctly to give this sense of like the town I mean not to be like in on the police side but that that must be crazy feeling yeah yeah (laughs) this man admitted to it you had to defrost her body for days before it could have an autopsy like she was in the freezer he confesses and then everybody's like fuck you cop don't don't prosecute Bernie like you better not go hard on him (laughs) like that is so bizarre yeah or the prosecutor what a weird 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 case yeah and he's still alive it makes me wonder what he's like in prison I mean is he really popular in prison from what I understand like well liked no issues like one woman was like if anyone could sing me up to heaven, it's Bernie. Like, these old women adored him. But what makes something, makes someone who, like this, who can be so charming, and I would think someone who enjoys money as much as he did would have a real aversion to life in prison. What would make him snap to that point that he would do something like this, you know? And maybe there is truth. I mean, maybe childhood abuse did happen and it was sort of a confluence of like personality development, life choices. He's on this kind of like long con. Like, you know, there is some about being gay and like that would have never been feasible Mm -hmm. because there were talks like it's like it wasn't just old women. Like he could have married a ton of women in that town. They were like all kind of under a spell. (laughs) But, of course, I think the old women was extra helpful. Like, there probably wasn't much sex involved in the yeah. conversation. Yeah. I, I feel like older women were not allowed to be sexually liberated at that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that it's super allowed now, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it was even more, like, just a given that yeah. they wouldn't be having sex. <laughs> well, and especially in the really churchy crowds. He lost his mom so young, and then his dad pretty young. There was probably something about maternal yearning. Abandonment, you know, again, and yeah. I mean, somebody needs to but. really go and interview him, and yeah. And he Ooh. probably wouldn't kill again. 
but who's to say? I mean, if he was poor and found another rich widow, like, who's to say? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Just out of control. And these are stories we wouldn't have been able to do on the podcast. Yeah. Even though, I mean, there's a whole movie, but it's like, well, that one movie, I can't talk for 30 minutes about that movie. Yeah, but it's so interesting. And you know, we talked when we originally had this idea about how to talk about it as things that should be more popular, but that feels really strange when you're talking about yeah. crime. But things that should be more known, you know, based on the facts of the case or the weird kind of details of the case as your story yeah. is. And there could have been more, but I only found like one forensic files on this case. Like it, it didn't even make its way through like the nonfiction true crime tv kind of rounds yeah well because this one feels like it would be pretty hard to tell a story about it because the story is kind of complex and nuanced and you know i think that scares people off sometimes yeah so listeners unless you revolt on us unless you like flood our dms (laughs) that you hate this format this might be something that we mix in on occasion for some of these really interesting stories that just don't have like a full slate of air quotes culture. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you like it, then send us your ideas because a lot of stories fit into this category. So we could sprinkle these in every now and again. Yeah. Cause I, I'm a fan. So mm-hmm. we'll see what the audience <laughs> says, but yeah, I, I like the idea of this being intermingled Mm-hmm. yeah definitely so interesting uh now i think i'm gonna rewatch the movie <laughs> <laughs> no crime in that well listeners we appreciate the hell out of you <laughs> absolutely bye-bye bye please head over to apple podcast and rate and review our show it really helps us out plus we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode This has been a Facts from Janet production. 